Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome one and all to Progress After Dark, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. Hello to everybody listening live, our evil army of the night. You guys are always welcome to call us live any time to gap about any of the subjects we're talking about or hijack the entire conversation with whatever's on your mind, believe it or not. Occasionally, people do that. And hello to everybody listening to uh, the John Fugelsang podcast, Sirius XM On Demand and the Sirius XM app. Hello to our day walkers. We hope you're enjoying us on your treadmill or your walk or your workout or in your car. It's an honor. Thank you very much. We have a really packed show tonight. We have a really solid show tonight, and I'm so glad you could be with us. We got some announcements to make. Before we get started with everything, there's a lot of things to get to, and we have all the things in order. But tomorrow night, William Shatner returns to the show. It's his third time. He's a beloved guest. He has a memoir that I was a bit dubious about. Not really a memoir. It's called Boldly Go, and it's about saying yes to challenges and embracing life as a sort of spiritual vocation, as a life philosophy. And it's really just Shatter telling Shatter stories about going for it and sometimes often failing. And it's so entertaining. It's just great William Shatner storytelling. I hope you'll join us. It's a really great one. The first time we've done it via Zoom, uh, Bill... I can call him that because when you're on the show three times, he, he wants you to do that. Bill usually comes in to see us in person. We did this one via Zoom, and it's great. Saturday night, I will be performing at the Hopewell Theater in Hopewell, New Jersey, right on the border with Pennsylvania. Gorgeous theater with a gorgeous co-headliner, the great Leanne Lord, who joins us every week on the show. Leanne's super funny. It's going to be a political comedy show. We hope you'll come down if you're in the Jersey or Pennsylvania area to the Hopewell Theater. It's going to be a blast. And then Tuesday night here in New York City, we premiere Laughing Liberally Off-Broadway, the new edition called Indictment Excitement, which, hey, that could be about Hunter or Trump. Uh, and that's going to be a lot of great comics, including our own beloved Rhonda Handsome. Frank Conniff's doing some shows there as well. Keith Price is doing some shows. A um, lot of great comics. It's going to be a hoot. I'm trying to coerce Judy Gold into joining us for some as well. And then I'll be gone. And then Monday the 17th, Comedy Store in Hollywood with Felicia Michaels. And Saturday the 22nd of October, the big final show of the Sexy Liberal Save Democracy Tour with Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, Frangela, and myself. Special guest... Glenn Kirshner, yes, yeah, the really smart legal guy from MSNBC, Glenn freaking Kirshner, and the great 
Rob Reiner will be on stage with us and some other special surprises. Go to sexyliberal.com for tickets. That show is also, if you can't make it to L.A., we're going to be streaming it live as a pay-per-view special. You can go to sexyliberal.com and tickets are 20 bucks. Please get good and liquored up or if you're Joe Biden, something else to enjoy the evening and have some giggles. It's going to be a really fun show, a really passionate show. It's going to be the big pep rally of Election 22. And above all, I promise it will be deeply funny. Okay, Uh, Chris, do we begin with the good news or the really good news? Which one do we start with? The really good news. The really, all right, all right, I'll I'll start. Normally I go with the good news and I'll start with the really good news. Is there any bad news you could chase it with? It's America, Chris. There's always bad news. Uh, There's a Republican Party. Kevin McCarthy walks among us. There's always bad news. We got plenty of that. I'm here to laugh at the bad news and celebrate the good news. (laughs) Okay, give me the good. Give me the good. What I want to pitch is a segment for local news about the positive stories, because it's also negative all the time. So why can't we have a positive news network that says things? Here's the positive thing. For a very long time in this country, legal cannabis has been a lot more popular than the two political parties keeping cannabis illegal. At this point, 20 states in D.C. have legalized marijuana for non-medical use. Non-medical. And a record 68% of us supported legalizing cannabis in a Gallup poll last year. 68%. Joe Biden's approval rating? 42.7. See where I'm going with this? Now, we have not been very optimistic about Joe Biden when it comes to weed, and I will confess I have been extra critical of the president for some of the policies, including firing White House officials who had previously used cannabis in the past. That's how you're going to get other voters to join? That's how you're going to build your coalition? A lot of Democrats have been pushing Joe Biden to fulfill a campaign promise about decriminalizing it. There was a letter sent nearly a year ago, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, and Jeff Merkley, my favorite Senate law firm, they all wrote to Biden saying, hey, remember when you said you would have a blanket pardon for all nonviolent federal cannabis offenses? How about that? I'll admit, I, I've been saying for a while, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the fall before the midterms. I, I said you're going to have the <laughs> you're going to have some kind of build back better pass. You're going to have the January 6th hearings all summer. I was wrong. I predicted that the student loan debt forgiveness would come in August. In September, it came in August. But but I predicted this, too. He's doing it. As of today, Joe Biden announced he's taking executive action to pardon Americans convicted of simple cannabis possession under federal law and D.C. statute. This news is so huge. It's not enough, but it's guys, it's so huge. It's so historic. If you've done as many fundraisers over the years for decriminalized cannabis organ, my God, the shows I did for students for sensible drug policy. It's massive. And it's another example of politicians actually doing the stuff you elect them to do. If you vote for people who promise things, you can put pressure on them and they will do things. These pardons will come through an administration process to be developed by the Department of Justice. Uh, It could amount to thousands of pardons. And that's a huge burden on the lives of many people who, because you have a federal conviction for cannabis, you, you can't get hired. You can't get it housing. In many cases, you can't go to certain kinds of schools. What happened today was the first major step towards decriminalization. And Dank Brandon was trending all day. Dank, Dank Brandon, which is now available in Sativa, Indica, Malarkey, and Corn Pop. Here is Joe Biden releasing a video uh, where he detailed and explained today's executive action on cannabis prosecutions. As I said when I ran for president, 
No one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. So today, I'm taking three steps to end this failed approach. First, I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal offense, federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. Second, I'm calling on all governors to do the same for state marijuana possession offenses. Third, the federal government currently classifies marijuana as a Schedule I substance, the same as heroin and LSD, and more serious than fentanyl. It makes no sense. So I'm asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to initiate a process to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Even as federal and local regulations of marijuana change, important limitations on trafficking, marketing, yes. and underage sales should stay in place. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. It's so huge, guys. I mean, he's also asking Health and Human Services and the DOJ to review whether it should be still classified as a Schedule One substance. That's that's a really big thing. And this is going to be now, in the coming days, creating the process for issuing these pardons, which is very, very exciting. There is no reason why cannabis should be on the same schedule as heroin or LSD. And that's nothing against you heroin and LSD fans. God bless you all. We're, you're, you're a very important part of our audience. All, all kinds of addicts. But trust me, we love you all. And this move, of course, does not legalize the use of cannabis. It doesn't. But my God, look at the history of it. You know, it's a flower. It's a flower that's been growing here in North America a lot longer than white people have been growing here in North America. George Washington grew hemp at Mount Vernon. Thomas Jefferson grew hemp. Thomas Jefferson helped smuggle rare hemp seeds out of China. Benjamin Franklin started our very first colonial uh, printing press using hemp paper. I'm not saying he smoked any of it. I'm sure lots of sober guys fly kites with metal on them during thunderstorms. Jesus. But, you know, for like over 200 years in this country, you could pay your taxes in cannabis hemp. That's true. It was a currency. That's where we get the expression joint return. I don't want you to laugh at that. I'm proud of it anyway. So cannabis was never a problem, right? In colonial days, uh, I mean, people knew that it was a painkiller and it was used as a painkiller. It was as American as apple pie. And everyone knew if you smoked the flowery top part of the hemp plant, you would want to eat a lot of apple pies. They all knew it. It wasn't controversial. The biggest drug problem in the colonies was the biggest drug problem in the 20th century and in the 21st century. And that's alcohol. But in 1937, Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act, which essentially criminalized the flower. Uh, at the time, the AMA protested because they knew it was a medicine. The New York Academy of Medicine in 1937 put out a report declaring marijuana did not induce violence or insanity. It did not lead to addiction. It didn't lead to other drug use. Seventy five years ago. So you got to remember in all your debates with right wing people over this legal weed is technically the conservative point of view. 
So it's great. Could it go further? Yes. We have to fully deschedule cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act, not have a, a, a committee to have a meeting about a policy that could eventually lead to a plan that could lead. No, just do it. You keep marijuana on the federal drug schedule, and that means people will continue to face criminal charges for marijuana. So if you mean it, get it off of there. Now, the best part about this is seeing people like Tom Cotton, who looks like a constipated pencil, flipping out. He called this a desperate attempt at distraction. It's actually a calm attempt at fulfilling a campaign promise. And best of all, it draws a much sharper distinction between the two parties. Guys, I love Ralph Nader. I believe in third parties. But this whole crap from 20 years ago, the two parties are the same. I used to believe it. You can't believe it anymore. And I'll use this with any of our friends on the left who want to claim it. More than 6,500 people were convicted of simple possession between 92 and last year under federal law. Thousands more under the D.C. code. Most convictions do happen at the state level. And so those pardons are going to be up to each individual governor. But right now, Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North and South Dakota all have legalization measures on their ballots for next month. 19 states have legalized it recreationally. 38 have legalized it for medicinal use. And earlier today, the nicest part of this was uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra tweeted, looking forward to working with Attorney General to answer POTUS's call to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. That tweet was put out at exactly 420. Look, no one should ever be turned down for a job or for housing or to go to a school or for their kid to go to a school because they have a nonviolent cannabis charge on their record. This is huge. It's a big step towards justice. It's the sort of thing that should make people want to get off the couch and vote. And again, it's another distinction between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Yes, they're both old white guys, but old white guys who are willing to evolve are a lot better than old white guys who say evolution's a myth. That's the that's the really good news. Shall I go to just the mere good news now? Because the good news was today was supposed to be all about the Hunter Biden indictment. I'm sorry. <laughs> there is no Hunter Biden. The Hunter Biden leak about an indictment. Someone planned to leak today, and it was going to be the big right-wing news story to carry the entire cycle. And instead, it was completely overshadowed. By what Joe Biden did. But the FBI and the IRS think they've got uh, enough evidence to charge Hunter Biden. And they're waiting on a certain Trump appointed U.S. attorney to decide whether there's enough evidence to have this indictment. They're focused on Hunter Biden's taxes and whether he lied in his paperwork when buying a gun. Hunter Biden's lawyer said uh, to The Washington Post, any agent you cite as a source in your article apparently has committed such a felony for leaking grand jury information. Now, again, it, it is kind of strange. Why, why would the DOJ which never leaks, right? We talk about this all the time. When Merrick Garland was doing Oklahoma City bombing and Unabom, never leaked. But today, 30 days before the midterms, there's a leak. And the leak is, hey, we've got enough evidence to indict and arrest Hunter Biden. Oh my God, these people are so stupid. Folks, who, who that was excited to vote Republican in 2022? Like, 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 how does this change those numbers? Are there any people who weren't going to vote Republican, but now... Because they might indict Hunter Biden, those people will show up. The Republican Party is so good at appealing so deeply to the dumb motherfuckers who are already voting for the Republican Party, and they keep on doing it. 
look, a, a lot of liberals are outraged and, and maybe they should be. Why was there a leak? Merrick Garland said there'll be no political or otherwise improper interference in the Hunter Biden case. But again, Hunter Biden has no role in his father's White House. He doesn't run a business that his dad makes money off of. But this was the big October surprise leak, guys. This was it. The Hunter Biden laptop story. The problem is Hunter Biden's laptop is only a story to people who already watch freaking Newsmax. We already know how they're going to vote. They're going to try and hammer Joe Biden with this. But it's like, well, how's it going to change the electoral makeup? And again, there's no charges. It's just a leak. It's good news because it shows they're scared. Why? Well, Dino Badala put it best. He tweeted, if Hunter Biden is indicted, that means 100% DOJ will be indicting Donald Trump. It's how DOJ gets to appear fair. And that was my initial thought right away. Oh, man. Now, when an indictment comes for Donald Trump, maybe before Christmas, right-wing folks can't claim he's being singled out. (laughs) And the best part was how people on the right seem to think that progressives and liberals and Democrats and anti-evil people were going to be outraged by this, that we were going to be so furious that, oh, you hurt us. Do you notice the tone of my voice? Do I sound upset that Hunter Biden might be indicted? I'm completely amused by it. Oh, no. Hunter Biden. You went after Hunter Biden? The, the president's son is off limits. That's a witch hunt. It's a political witch hunt, you monsters. No. No. See, here's the deal, right-wing friends. Liberals don't care. If the DOJ investigates Hunter Biden, because we're not in a cult of hypocritical obedience. We believe all public figures who break laws should be held accountable. Do y'all? Hmm? Because if there's enough evidence to indict Hunter Biden, I got to tell you, folks, there's a lot of evidence to indict Donald Trump for a lot of things. And also, we're 100 percent down with the DOJ investigating all the business deals of all the children of all the presidents. Please, please, DOJ, what's Amy Carter been up to? What about Jenna Bush? Let's look into all of them. Let's especially look into Don Jr. and Eric and Ivanka. (laughs) Guys, we don't really give a damn if Hunter Biden gets indicted for breaking the law because we're not blindly obedient in a cult to a political movement. I don't know about you guys, though. After this, I'm probably never going to vote for Hunter Biden. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
And welcome back. We're at 866-997-4748. A quick reminder, tomorrow night, it is the return of William Shatner. Tomorrow evening on 127. Okay, we now live in a United States where we're actually seeing states that are going to physically try to stop taxpaying citizens who are pregnant from traveling out of the states to get abortions. We're at a time now when any time a woman in certain states has a miscarriage, she might have to worry about being investigated by law enforcement. It's a time now where schools can bully children into prayer, whether they believe or not. And we can thank the most activist Supreme Court in our history for that. At the same time, we've just shown under this presidential administration in 2021 that we can dramatically, through the force of government, reduce child poverty in this country if we feel like doing it. Now, modern libertarianism began with Friedrich Hayek's admirable uh, corrective to oppressive state power, showing, yes, capitalism can improve life for everyone. And, And look, we all agree with a philosophy that's about how do we build a world where people can live as they like. But what has it turned into today, this toxic blend of anarchists and corporate fascists and disdain for the vulnerable, and of course, rationalization for pollution in the name of profits? Andrew Koppelman is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law, uh, Professor by Courtesy of Political Science and Philosophy, Department-Affiliated Faculty at Northwestern University. His book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed is the Bible, my friends, the definitive history of this ideology that has completely changed American politics and changed your life more than you realize. It is a great critique of the thinkers who have corrupted this idea into what he calls an infantile fantasy of godlike self-sufficiency. Oh, my God, I love the language in this book. Professor Koppelman, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I have so many questions to ask you about the book because so many times you, you articulate what so many of us feel. I, I, I want to talk about the delusion and the greed that you mentioned in your title because it appears where libertarianism is today, those two things kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Well, uh, so the delusion, I mean, so this book is primarily about the way in which libertarian political philosophy has changed over time so that in its present form, it is the belief that we will be freer if we constrain government. The smaller government is, the weaker our government is, the freer we will be. And that's put forth by people who honestly believe it. I know philosophers in universities who honestly believe this stuff and uh, put forth arguments. And part of what I try to do in the book is to say what those arguments are and explain why they don't work, criticizing, uh, I guess, Robert Nozick is the one who uh, I think a lot of people read in college, but uh, other writers as well, uh, Milton Friedman or Richard Epstein. but uh, the way that libertarianism operates in American politics is a coalition between those folks and people in business who would like to be able to hurt people without being bothered by the police, Thank who you. also want very small government because government regulation is cutting into their profits. And so you could see the coalition operating, for example, in the Trump administration, because Trump talked about freedom. He talked about getting the burden of government regulation off of us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he gutted the scientific staffs of the agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency 
thereby enabling industrialists to pollute without interference. And the consequence is that people get poisoned, people's lives get shortened. That doesn't look like freedom to me. Correct. I mean, I really thought the era of Trump and COVID might have humbled some of our libertarian friends, but I thought the same thing at the end of the Bush-Cheney economic experiment, too. It just sort of seems like no matter how many times the ideology fails, no matter how many Somalia comparisons we bring up, these arguments are always going to be extremely well-funded and extremely well-defended by certain measures of academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, one of the things, though, that uh, I learned when I was uh, trying to learn about libertarianism, I wrote an earlier book about the role of libertarianism in the Obamacare fight. Uh, that yes. uh, book was called uh, The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform, where I wanted to argue that uh, the people who were challenging Obamacare were trying to smuggle libertarianism into the Constitution, where it actually wasn't. Uh, And so I wanted to understand libertarianism and what it was. And I found that it's very hard for somebody who is not an insider to learn the history. There are books out there that try to offer introductions to libertarianism, but they are all written by enthusiasts. Sometimes very articulate enthusiasts, but there isn't a good critical introduction out there. And so that's why I wrote this book. Well, we all agree with any kind of theory that would promise a better life for everyone. That's how Hayek posited it. If you want to do more for the poor, don't try to equalize, make the economy grow, let the rich keep quite a lot of what they have. But then it was interpreted by by Murray Rothbard, who most people probably never heard of. But boy, has he influenced the field of inequality. Uh, well, uh, Rothbard uh, really hit the peak of his influence in the 1970s. Uh, was basically an anarchist. Uh, he thought that uh, he really believed that if you shrank government down to nothing, we would all be freer. We could contract with private police forces and get protection and everything could be done by contract. And it, it was a weird fantasy. But it's remarkable how influential uh, he was. Uh, He really didn't do a very good job at all of thinking about pollution. It really confused him massively. Uh, I talk about uh, his lines of influence along multiple lines. The person who he influenced, who I think is most important, is Charles Koch of the Koch brothers. Of course. Who I... gave enormous funding to libertarian causes without Koch funding. I think a lot fewer people would know what libertarianism is. Uh, His brother was, uh, David was the libertarian vice presidential candidate in 1980. So he's been doing this for a long time. And the most significant thing that uh, Charles has done is to constrain the power of government to deal with climate change. If it hadn't been for Charles Koch spending so much money to disseminate basically falsehood about climate change denial, the planet would not be in the desperate condition that it's in now. I think there's a fair fair chance that without that libertarian intervention, all those folks in Florida would be alive now because you wouldn't be getting storms of the severity that we're now seeing. And all of the rest of climate change, this was an entirely unavoidable, this was an entirely avoidable catastrophe. And it was brought about by idealists who thought they were making us better off. Exactly. And I think the pollution level is, is, is maybe the most airtight argument you can have to show that, yes, we do need government regulation 
for the common good and for the good of capitalism as well. Mm-hmm. You identify yourself, Professor, as a pro-capitalism leftist, and mm-hmm. you define libertarianism. I call myself a capitalist with empathy. I, I think we're in, mm-hmm. we're cousins. Yeah. But you define, and I've always defined libertarians as embarrassed Republicans. You're a bit better at it than me. You, you <laughs> defined it as a mutated form of liberalism, which you say holds the purpose of government to be guaranteeing to individuals the freedom to live as they like. And you write, I soon found out that libertarianism comes in flavors, some more bitter than others. And and it is a rather broad umbrella term. I mean, there are anarchists, there are philosophers, Uh and there are, as you say, the business people who'd like to hurt people without getting in trouble for it. But I think that uh, at least the way that the ideology is sold is as an avenue to freedom. It does get started in 1944 when Hayek writes The Road to Serfdom. At that point, Quite a lot of people think that uh, centralized economic planning is the way to deliver a decent life to everybody. And Hayek argues, well, no, centralized planning is going to be tyrannical. It's going to be wasteful. Uh, We need economic growth in order to provide adequately for everybody. And only a market economy can do that. And he's really prevailed on that argument. I was surprised when I reread the book. I hadn't read it in years, but I read it as part of this project to find that there really isn't a whole lot in there that would arouse much disagreement from Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They both want capitalism with a much more robust safety net than we have now. And you can have that. In Sweden, they have a much more generous welfare state than we do. And they have more billionaires per capita than we do. It's a capitalist state. It's possible to do. I mean, when everyone does better, everyone does better. And the best thing for capitalism seems to be a living wage workforce that can afford to pay for goods and services. I I do want to talk to you about abortion, because this is an area where I keep waiting for our libertarian friends to to show up to the fight. Um, You you say that you knew Roe was dead when Justice Ginsburg died. Did you have any idea how they'd go about banning it? And and did you expect them to have any integrity in the reasoning where they would eventually use to ban Roe? No, I should say I don't talk about abortion at all in the book, although I have talked about it elsewhere and I'm happy to talk about it here. Um, I think that I mean, there was a standard Republican line about abortion, which is parroted pretty precisely in Justice Alito's opinion in the Dobbs case. It doesn't say anything in the Constitution about this. The Supreme the court made it up in Roe versus Wade. We just give it back to the states. There is, uh, I've argued, a provision of the Constitution that is quite relevant that people haven't paid enough attention to, and that's the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery and involuntary servitude. And I'm going to put on my originalist hat for a moment here. Please, The 13th Amendment means that the United States has done something horrible in its past, and we are never going to do that again. So then you have to ask, what was this horrible thing? Well, compelling women to bear children against their will was part of what slavery was. Correct. This is not an analogy. This is what slavery was for half of the slave population. And we're not supposed to do that anymore. That's what the 13th Amendment consists of. I think the argument has been neglected by the left with the result that the right hasn't felt much need to respond to it. Yes. I mean, we keep waiting for the privacy debate to come in. But the reason we even have a debate about something we're calling sexual equality is because 
this nation has a history of forcing women to be mothers. And I Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I mean, why aren't we talking about the state's power to impose burdens on pregnant Americans? And uh, Alito thinks that it is dispositive that all male legislatures in 1865 didn't see a problem. I mean, it just stands to reason if you want to reduce the abortion rates, criminalizing the procedure doesn't seem the most efficient way to do it. Well, it hasn't done very much uh, in Texas, although it has made it much more dangerous to be pregnant because there are medically necessary procedures that you can't undertake now. Uh, There is some evidence that if you made it easier for women who want to have children to have them and to afford them, you would lower the abortion rate uh, as much as criminalization would without these horrible collateral effects on women who want to have babies and who run into medical complications. What do you make of um, our libertarian friends who combine it with a ferocious uh, version of Christianity? I know Ayn Rand probably wouldn't approve, but I keep trying to wrap my head around the archetype of Rand Paul as our most prominent libertarian member of the Senate. Well, it's a very odd cultural formation. And all that I can say is that every religion has taken multiple forms over time. And uh, the odd interpretation of Christianity that associates it with uh, minimal government uh, just shows that religion is malleable. And uh, so a religion that uh, is based at its core on concern for other people, obligations to the poor, obligations to uh, take care of the weak and vulnerable, has turned into this callous and selfish ideology. Uh, The question of whether it is correct Christian theology is above my pay grade. I can't answer that. But I will say, uh, for anybody who's read the Sermon on the Mount, it is surprising. Yeah, I think one brisk review of the New Testament will show you you are qualified to make that judgment. <laughs> um, I, I do want to talk to you about uh, originalists, because I'm mm-hmm. every time I hear someone, sir, say that they're an original intent constitutionalist, I say, oh, may I see your slaves? Um, wh- what, are, what are the most common fallacies of originalism when we hear our um, friends talk well, about the I mean, step, Take a step back and say, what are we doing when we interpret the Constitution or when we, when we interpret any legal document? And what its original purpose is, is a source of law. Uh, so, you know, when I just was talking about the 13th Amendment, I made an originalist argument. I said, you know, here's the purpose and we should uh, read it in light of this purpose. And here's this new application. Uh, but the originalists on the Supreme Court, uh, yeah, I think, give some support to the idea that originalism is real and has meaning because they find it necessary to keep distorting and lying about the historical record, which That's suggests it. that the historical record actually is constraining in an interesting way if they need to lie about it. I just uh, posted a paper on the Internet uh, arguing that uh, Justice Alito has said that the original meaning of the free exercise clause is that religious people get excused from laws if uh, they have an objection, just a whole range of laws, and it's up to judges to decide whether to excuse them. But uh, you go back into the historical record, there is not a single person, a single human being on the planet at the time of the framing who reads free exercise to mean that. He is entirely making it up. So I'm not as hostile to originalism as some people on the left. I think it's not the only source of constitutional law, but uh, original meaning is a source. 
And uh, you know, it evidently is not infinitely malleable if judges find it necessary to distort the historical record. That shows well, that they know the historical record isn't on their side. Well, you then you mentioned the ACA earlier. Let me bring it back to that, Professor, because we're talking about building a world where people can live as they like. Obviously, mm-hmm. being in good health is conducive mm-hmm. to that. And for this yeah, being a law so, that, that took people out of, gave health care to, to more mm-hmm. Americans than ever and was in no way socialism. I mean, the ACA yeah. seems like a libertarian dream. You're forcing people to buy a private product. Well, uh, the... Uh, so the constitutional argument on behalf of the Affordable Care Act is really pretty simple. Insurance is commerce. It's sold across state lines. It's a national market. The Supreme Court decided long ago that uh, Congress has the power to regulate national markets. Congress has the power to choose any convenient means for carrying out its power. The Supreme Court held that in 1819 in McCulloch versus Maryland. So Congress could deal with the health care market by having government payroll doctors. It actually does that with the uh, Veterans Administration. Mm -hmm. It could give people vouchers to buy uh, medical care on the private market and send government the bill. That's what it does with Medicare and Medicaid. Or it can uh, privatize it the way that it's done with Obamacare. And the Constitution gives Congress discretion to do that. So this is why when the first challenges to Obamacare arose, Lots of constitutional law professors looked at them and said, this is silly. The Supreme Court settled this in 1819. And then we found that uh, Republican appointed judges started making up new limitations on Congress. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it was surprisingly near in the end. I love what you write in the book. I'm going to quote you again. You say, rejecting paternalistic regulation because you hate the idea that your competence is limited is like attacking the practice of medicine because you hate the idea of being vulnerable to illness. Why is it so hard for us to find common ground between members of the left and our libertarian friends and loved ones? I mean, you make such a great case for the need for state regulation and for the need for protection. I mean, in workplace safety alone. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it, the reason why you've got workplace safety regulation is because workers know a lot less about the dangers of a workplace than their boss does. Their boss knows which bits of the workplace are dangerous and which ones aren't. Uh, And if the boss invests in safety equipment, uh, his workers won't know that they're being protected. And so it creates a competitive advantage for his competitors who have a more dangerous workplace. The only way in which you can fix that and the only way in which business people can have the safe workplaces they want to have without being outcompeted is by having a government regulation impose it on everybody. This used to be a matter of broad consensus. But uh, again, the anti-regulatory rhetoric that uh, you see today uh, makes it very hard for people to get their minds around that. Well-funded rhetoric, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and Coke has spent enormous amounts of money promoting this uh, minimal state idea, which, you know, it's very hard to get into the man's head. Uh, on the one hand, he was a true believer as far back as the 1960s when he had no particular political power or influence. On the other hand, his investments are in petroleum. And so uh, all of his wealth depends on the continued consumption of fossil fuels. But uh, a lot of the anti-regulatory animus goes beyond what benefits him. I think that he really believes this stuff, and it's just bad political philosophy. 
Do you have any hope in the issue of climate change that our libertarian friends may realize that an uninhabitable environment is profoundly bad for capitalism? Well, it's, it is dawning on people as the catastrophe is occurring, it becomes harder and harder to deny it. Uh, and I'm happy to say that uh, I mean, Congress actually did make an enormous investment in improving technology, given that uh, the controlling climate change is something that doesn't need to only happen in the United States. It's happening in That's poor right. countries that don't want to be poor anymore. The only way in which we're going to address this problem is by coming up with better technologies and handing those technologies to those countries on a platter. And that is, in fact, happening. I think that about a third of the poor countries in the world uh, last year managed to improve their gross national product while reducing their carbon footprint. So it is happening. But the libertarians aren't being helpful and they continue to be an obstacle. No As Republicans said, voted for the climate legislation. That's disturbing. None. None. None of them voted for mental health in schools. And that's their number one go to to push away gun violence. But it does seem like for many of our friends on the libertarian side, we, we can find common ground in uh, their opposition to the drug war. They're great on that. Mm -hmm. Ron Paul was one of the most prominent people to speak out against the Iraq war. We, we respect them for their stances on militarism. Are there other areas where you think we should find more admiration for modern libertarian thinking? Um, well, you know, the... Uh there's a general suspicion of government, and sometimes suspicion of government is justified. Uh, you know, it's like having a sure. an analogy that I use in the book. Uh, it's like having a doctor who uh, is skeptical of any medical intervention, thinks the body can heal itself. We don't need any uh, drugs. We don't need any surgery. Well, that person's going to be a terrible doctor, but he could be a fabulous <laughs> medical researcher. If uh, he can actually show you that this or that intervention is counterproductive, that would be good to know. And the useful thing that libertarians do is they libertarian journalists uh, writing in places like Reason magazine sure. actually do bring forth this or that stupid thing that government is doing that it ought to stop. That's very valuable. true. That's very, very true. We can we can learn a lot from that on, on common grounds. W one last question, Professor. Do we still make too much as a culture of Ayn Rand and her influence on this movement? Uh, well, she is more widely read than any of uh, the other writers that I deal with. And she offers this vision of the market as uh, divided between the uh, producers who are supermen, who are uh, basis of everybody else's prosperity, and government, which can't do anything right and uh, is meddling with them. That is more the vision in Atlas Shrugged than it is in The Fountainhead. In The Fountainhead, sure. The market doesn't reward virtue in the same way, but it's a profoundly distorted picture of the world in which uh, the needs of hu other human beings are regarded as a terrible danger. Correct. And so it's just a bad way to think about the world. And I have to say, I learned a lot about Ayn Rand when I was writing the book. She was a really damaged person who had been heavily was, traumatized by her experience in the Russian Revolution. And that damage carries over to the view of the world in her writings. Yeah. Uh, savagely opposed to religion as well, which makes the whole, mm -hmm. you know, modern libertarianism movement seem even more confusing from Paul Ryan on down. Yeah.
I want to thank you for joining us. The book, once again, is Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. It is a great gift, uh, and it's just a brilliant, brilliant look at how everything we describe as American greatness is because of collective achievement. Andrew Koppelman, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Please come back anytime. We'll be right back after this quick break. This is Progress. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. <laughs> oh, oh, Joe Sudbay. Oh, Joe Sudbay's got to tell that that little nugget to our audience when the mics are on. Mr. Sudbay has, of course, worked in politics and advocacy for three decades. He's had a front row seat to the way online campaigning has changed advocacy in our nation's capital. He's worked on so many issues from LGBT equality, labor. Yes, labor. If your news channel doesn't talk about labor, your news channel's not liberal news. Uh, immigration reform. For the past eight years, Joe's had his own company, Sudbay Strategies, which works with progressive advocacy organizations. Joe will be guest hosting Thursday and Friday of next week, and he hosts state of the states here on progress mr sudbay what a pleasure to welcome you here when i'm actually in the building hi well i can't tell you how excited i am to be with you john tonight thank you for inviting me and thank you for that build-up you gave me in the first part of the show i hope i can live up to it <laughs> oh no listen it's an honor every time you guest host and i come back on monday and they all tell me you know like what it was like to have a smart guy in this time slot and i, I it's it's really great that i can balance it out <laughs> you were saying that that uh you, you were saying some very nice things as well we're honored that you 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 guest host a lot of shows though right i mean you've guest hosted all kinds I, i've guest hosted all kinds of shows on sirius x and progress, but you've really been all over the place, right? Right. I've done, um, I do, I started doing Mike Signorelli's show when he was on OutCue back in 2011. Nice. So, uh, that was a four hour show back then. That was a long, that was a long haul. So I've done, um, his show as he's moved over to progress a lot. I've done Dean's show. I've done your show. I, I did Zerlina's show a couple times and, um, I love doing all of them. I always say though, and I tell Carlos, my husband, I'm doing the cool show tonight because ah. I feel like this is the cool show. And I am so not cool. I'm such a dork. But uh, and but it's great. And I love your audience. You you, you get great callers. And of oh, course, working you. with Chris and Thea is a joy. Just Chris and Thea are why it is the cool show. Yeah. And uh, if you like our audience, boy, you will love Kendall. Let me tell you. Um, you know, Joe, I, there's so much I want to cover with you. First off, um, I, I want to see how you're doing with this leak about uh, a possible indictment of Hunter Biden. Since we're exactly like Republicans, we're a blindly obedient cult and get very emotionally invested in these things. Um, you know, to me, the only question is, this is going to be the first leak of Barrett Garland's career. I mean, the timing alone to me when I first read it, all I thought was, wow, they they are scared. Well, you know what I thought? I, I um, tend to, when I see these kind of things, I look to see what Marcy Wheeler has to say over at Empty Wheel, because mm -hmm. um, she, she will call out the reporters, and she has been calling out the reporter at the Washington Post repeatedly for his leaks. He has a history of getting these leaks. And it's not necessarily that the leak came from the prosecutors. It probably came from someone in law enforcement who's trying to push the issue. So... Um, Marcy has been having a field day just slicing and dicing it. And 
so, uh, you know, I just kind of feel like, oh, what a coincidence. You know, we're in the middle of this major scandal about Herschel Walker. We're in a time when it's becoming clear that the House is much more in play. What do Republicans do or what do their allies do? They try and change the subject. And of course, going back to Hunter Biden is one of their favorite, favorite tricks. Yeah. Can I can I can I actually quote Marcy Wheeler? Because you mentioned her and she kind of nailed it. The, the journalist at The Post is Devlin Barrett. And she says, Devlin, breaking people who are not prosecutors have leaked to Devlin weeks before an election that they think Hunter Biden could be charged, even if they're unaware of all the evidence against Hunter. She goes on to say, once again, to be clear, got the goods on Hunter? Charge him. Do it. Also, got shit you want to leak about Democrats in the month before an election as a stunt? Give that shit to Devlin, because that's not part of my job as a reporter. Oh, did someone open a window or did it get cold in here? Great, great stuff. Yeah, she nails it. I, I love Marcy. I just love her. And uh, she she's she's just takes no shit. And she calls these reporters out left and right. It's just great. And they yeah. deserve it. A lot of them deserve it. Um, yeah, and- I know that was going to be the big October surprise in Tuckerville. But of course, um, I kind of love that it was totally overshadowed by Joe Biden's major step towards the decriminalization of cannabis in the U.S. Were you surprised that before the election, we saw him pardoning all federal simple possession convictions? Uh, My jaw dropped. Literally, my jaw dropped. I I saw a tweet. Someone sent me a tweet and I thought, Okay, there's got to be more to this story. And then I read the White House statement, saw the Biden video. You played a clip of it. I was shocked and 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 shocked in a good way, which is such a rare feeling these days (laughs) to be shocked in a good way. You know, when I first moved to Washington many years ago, I spent um, I did a short gig at the uh, Senate Radio and TV Gallery that this was like back in October, November of. 1993. And that's when the Senate was debating the crime bill. And I watched Joe Biden on the floor with his crime bill being so tough on crime, being like it it, it was just horrible watching. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember. And here we are, Joe Biden taking this step and encouraging governors to do the same thing, which, of course, I love that because it forces it out to the states. We've seen Beto say, Beto O'Rourke say he would definitely do it. Charlie yep. Chris down in Florida said he'd do it. Governor of Pennsylvania is trying to figure out if he can do it. You know, I love that piece of it, too. And, you know, I know you read some polling. Carrie Elleveld over at Daily Coast had yeah. a breakdown of the 18 to 34-year-olds. 82% support um, wow. legalization. Eighty two percent. So the question is legalization, but it's you know, it gets us into that conversation. But, you know, this is Joe Biden doing another. It's like I I think, you know, there's this idea. Well, it's going to be important for young people. Um, Hello. (laughs) I know a lot of people my age and older who are going to be very happy that this action has been taken. The other thing, John, I always like to point out, you know, one of the things we see is. When voters actually vote on some of these issues, they support it overwhelmingly. Look at some of the states that have supported marijuana legalization for recreational use. That's right. Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, Michigan, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Mm -hmm. South Dakota. South Dakota. Oh, say it slower. Say it it slower. Oh, (laughs) Oh, I know. But South Dakota, you know what they did? The Republicans went in and brought it to court and had their hack GOP judges uh, block it. So they're going to try it again. But, you know, when you 
and it happened in a bunch of other states. It happened in my own state of Maine and Massachusetts. Voters overwhelmingly support this because they get it. So many yeah. people. I mean, I don't, and that I don't just for a variety of reasons. But I have everybody I know does, or um, and it's like it's like it's just a no brainer. And but well, yeah, I mean, even even if you don't like it, I mean, even if you would never touch it, you 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 yeah. can really be against its use while also really being against putting people in cages for a flower that grew here long before the first Caucasian ever showed up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've I, I take some guidance from my friend, Kathleen Friedel, who I've had on your show. She's been on. Uh, I've had her interviewed her a lot. She's a she wrote a book on the drug wars. Um got published a couple of years ago. And her, her main premise was the federal government is addicted to the war on drugs and it needs yeah. an intervention. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, true. I've said it for a long time. And by the way, yep. the great thing is I, I finally reached a point where like, I do hope we're addicted to the war on drugs, because if we are, then we can get treatment. And I never thought it would come from this guy. But Joe, I've been saying for a couple of years now, one of these parties is going to decriminalize weed first. And I really hope the Republicans don't figure it out before the Democrats, because it could have happened. I mean, what do you see this doing in terms of because to me, the big question is voter turnout a month from now. I think it's the kind of thing that adds to enthusiasm for Democrats to get to the polls. They have taken a number of steps over the past few months um, policy wise to in, in, you know, invigorate the the base. Uh, certainly, the student loan debt um, policy that Biden introduced that was important. This yes. today is important. Passing the Inflation Reduction Act with 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 the uh, you know the ability to reduce drug prices for seniors and addressing climate change for the first time. And I have to say too, John, I love that Biden was in Florida talking about climate change, standing in front of Ron DeSantis, a total denier. But Joe Biden spread some truth down there yesterday in Florida. And so I, I think that this is just an added element of the ability for Democrats to inspire their base and get them motivated and get them to the polls, because all of this is on the ballot. All of this is at stake right now. And keeping these policies in place requires Democrats to win on uh, November 8th. Speaking of spreading truth around, Joe, uh, Washington Post has a new study that shows of all the Republicans who are nominees for office this year, a majority of them that are on the ballot for next month, 299 in total, deny the results of the 2020 election. Over 60 percent of Americans will have the chance to vote for someone who says the most secure election in American history was stolen with zero evidence. Um, how worried should we be, or is this the kind of thing that hopefully goes away after an election? Oh, this isn't going to go away. You know, right now I saw that headline today on the post, a majority of GOP nominees Yeah. in the next election cycle, it's probably going to be closer to a hundred percent of GOP nominees. This has become a, 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 just a tenet of their party. And especially if Trump is on the ballot, uh, you can't run on the ticket with Trump and the GOP if you are not an election denier. It is you shocking can't. that this and it just shows this party is not serious. And I, I think it's really important that we we make a couple of points because there are a couple of Republicans running around the country who's, who try to pretend they're not like the rest of them. You yes, are. They right. You oh, yeah. You, oh, Mitt Romney's you, so much better, though, isn't oh, yeah. he? Isn't he, Joe? Mitt Romney's oh, so yeah. above all this. 
Yeah. Well, any Republican candidate for the House or Senate um, owns every other Republican House candidate, for, you know, especially in the House. You know, you've got a lot of Republicans. There's a guy up in Rhode Island, Alan Fung, who's trying to say, you know, I'm not like the rest of them. I want to go down and build bridges as a Republican. Dude, you win. You are empowering Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, yes. Matt Gates. That's who you're putting in power. You will Thank have you. nothing to say. And they will control the GOP. And the first vote any of them take will be for Kevin McCarthy for speaker. Thank so, you. no, we have to. You cannot vote for Republican if you care about this planet, if you care about our democracy, if you care about women, if you care about LGBT uh, uh, people. You just can't do it. Joe, let me ask you about one of my favorite topics to discuss, which is how miserable would Kevin McCarthy's life be if he found himself Speaker of the House this coming January? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, how how wretched, how how good would he make John Boehner look? You know, he's a wretched is the right word for Kevin McCarthy. He is really a wretched human being. And yeah, it will be a. First of all, it would be terrible for him. It would be way worse for the country. But that guy's going to be miserable if um, he if Republicans take control. And let's really hope we don't get to the point to find that out. But, you know, a couple weeks ago, they did their big event. Republicans did their big event unveiling their agenda, which is nothing. Right. A piece of mm -hmm. paper that. Yeah. And they had nothing. a video that featured photos from Ukraine and Russia, because that's how you know, conscientious hair about the United States. But right. who was sitting in the front row? Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's who controls the party right now, that Correct. wing of the party. And the rest of Correct. them are all afraid of her and, and Gates and that crowd. And we shouldn't, no one should pretend otherwise. Like, that's what you're voting for if you vote for a Republican. That's right. Any Republican House candidate. That's right. You know, I, I, I think you're so right. And again, do you see any possibility of some kind of um, backdoor fuckery going on where we could see maybe Jim Jordan on the ballot? I mean, a lot of special morons like to say they'll make Donald Trump the Speaker of the House because then they can easily impeach Biden and Harris, which would never happen. Right. Also, it would never happen because if Trump were Speaker of the House, he'd have to work and that's not going to happen. <laughs> but it does look like if they do take the House, the gavel will go to this shocking mediocrity. Yeah. yeah. Mediocrity and extremism. And at the same time. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's quite a combination. It's kind of a scary combination. And they've got the, the thing about them, John, is they've got no agenda. Like, what are they yes. running on? They're running on the fact that they're going to have hearings about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. That's yeah. literally their agenda. It's, that was their, but that was their platform in 2020. It's whatever Mr. Yeah. Trump wants. Their agenda is whatever the star of Celebrity Apprentice wants and own the libs. And, you know, list. that's that's only good enough to win if you do a lot of cheating, uh, which they do. And they're trying on many levels. And we now know the January 6th Select Committee is going to hold their final hearing next week, a week from today, October 13th at one o'clock. No live witnesses are scheduled. But this news comes the day that Proud Boys leader Jeremy Bertino pled guilty to federal charges of seditious conspiracy. At this point, is it just the miniseries of the summer that's going to try to drive up the vote, or do you see any kind of accountability coming from these hearings? Uh, I think, um, first of all, I think, I think one of the best things about these hearings, and I, I can't even believe I'm going to say this because I have loathed this family for decades, that Liz Cheney is on this committee and has such a vendetta against Kevin McCarthy yes. and 
the Republicans is really a benefit to us. I think, you know, they were the hearings were so riveting over the summer. And I think it's a good time. It's going to be, you know, just under four weeks left till November 8th. And it's a good reminder of the extremism. I mean, it drives me crazy that Republicans around the country are running around saying, you know, you've got to vote for us because we're better on crime. You supported the biggest crime, criminal activity that exactly. ever happened in this nation. And let's also on our say capital. every every one of these Republicans thinks that your local cops should have to face AR-15s. Let's let's right. not leave that out. That's how anti-crime they are. Thank you. That gun piece is Democrats should be pounding the shit out of that gun piece because they, oh. almost every single one of them voted against it. I just I just saw an ad, you know, against Mandela Barnes. They're really going after him. And what they're doing to Mandela Barnes is incredibly egregious because there was an article in Huffington Post that said they're running a um, Willie Horton like campaign. No, no, no. What they're trying to do is turn Mandela Barnes into the Willie Horton with fake right. ads making it look like he's at riots. Now, I I saw a great Twitter thread today from Ben Wickler, who's the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, someone I really have an enormous amount of respect for, who was laying out what they're going to do for the next five weeks. And they're going to hold Ron Johnson accountable on his anti-abortion position, but also crime and um, his desire to end Social Security. So it really is a question of right now not taking any shit from these Republicans and handing it right back to them. Are you optimistic about that? These are Democrats we're talking about. I have to say, I have been really surprised. John, I'm not making this up. Thursday before the uh, Dobbs decision, I was chatting with a friend who's uh, like a D.C. political consultant, like an insider type. And I was talking about abortion. And because and I had mentioned how I had been so much on Sirius XM. I was on Dean's show the night okay. the um the leak happened in that whole week. And, you know, the calls and the intensity of our listeners in uh, talking about this case up until then. And this person said to me, Democrats don't think it's going to be a big issue. There's some polling going around that shows it's not going to really be much of an impact. And I said, I think that's dead wrong. I think it's bullshit. And, you know, so I was worried. And they instead have leaned in. And I'll give a lot of credit to Pat Ryan who uh, won in New York 19, that same day the decision came out, he launched an ad on abortion talking about it as freedom, and he was going to fight for it. And he really helped lead the, lead the charge. And then the, the terrific work that was done in Kansas and the Mary right. Peltola's campaign, they have shown Democrats fight for what you believe in. And that's that was um, Pat Ryan's message. No more of this pablum you know, focus group tested, brother, show people you have a fight. And I think we're seeing more of it than I've ever seen from Democrats. I think you're right as well. We have to see if it translates to bodies online on Election Day. Joe Sudbay will be filling in for me next week on Thursday and Friday. Joe, how do our listeners follow you in your work? Uh, I'm on Twitter is basically where I do my most rants. Joe Sudbay on Twitter. (laughs) I do a lot of ranting and, and an occasional dog picture. Always an honor, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to having you here next week. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. 866-997-4748. This is Progress After Dark. (music) 
And welcome back. Tomorrow on the show, William Shatner. I'm going to try to get to a last couple of minute uh, calls. Please, 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 friends, make your points as quickly and succinctly as you can. Stephen in Kentucky. Hi. Hello, dear. And I'll call back tomorrow night with what, uh, what I was going to talk about. But I wanted to just mention tonight that song, True, by Spandau Ballet. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a rough that one. Song. I Honestly, I, I appreciate that song, but that was a rough one for me as a kid. True. Oh, I couldn't stand it. Yeah. And, and, and another you. one I couldn't stand was that Hold Me Now song. Remember that? You're taking me back, brother. Yes, I do. I couldn't I couldn't stand. Now, <laughs> the worst movie was She-Devil. Well, we're not going there. We're not we're not going to cinema. We're just talking about the worst whether Starship was the worst song of the eighties. That's that's all this is about. Rolling Stone called it eleven years ago and they're snobs anyway. But thank well, you so with, much. And that movie She Devil, remember uh Jeremy I remember Trendy Trendy or more, that song. <laughs> I remember they got Meryl Streep and Roseanne in a movie together just to say they could do it. Steven, thank you so much. Uh Sela in Texas, really quick, welcome. Hey, hey John. Hey. All the dick songs from the 80s, horrible. All of them. There was a bunch. Okay, there's good songs um, in the 80s, love. There's a lot of good songs in the 80s. A lot of dick songs, but... What a, what's a dick uh, song? What's, you, what's, a, what's a dick song? Yeah, all the guys talking about their dicks and Oh, well, rock those and are usually not good all. songs, yes. Yeah, no, they're bad. Anyway, <laughs> I want to tell you that I still use weed as a currency for, I don't know, 50 years now? Right on. And... It's a rural thing. I don't know if it's everywhere else, but it is here. But um, I know someone very intimately. Actually, I live with them. Mm-hmm. That is in Oregon right now, helping a mm-hmm. college bud trim his bud because you can grow bud in your backyard in Oregon. So, just saying. Okay. Okay. No big deal. See, that's good to know. I appreciate the detail. Give us a call tomorrow. We'll go even deeper into that. I just want to thank Judy Tenuta for being so funny and so kind and so brilliant. First time I met her, I was an intern at MTV and she was a big star and I was a teenager and she came into the room. I was writing cue cards up for some show. And at the time, New Kids on the Block was a big thing. And she just began cursing them out, saying they're just fucking menudo. They're just menudo. They're white menudo. And that was the day I fell in love with her. Uh, Years later, I got to know her. I got to be on stage with her once. We did a show together in Florida, and it was really, really a thrill. She was a smart, smart writer, a terrific comic. She found a character and a persona, branded herself, and she made a living on the road writing her own stuff. It's really sad we lost her. After losing Gilbert, after losing Norm, after losing Bob Saget earlier this year, after losing Louie, I don't even know what's happening to all these comedians that I grew up admiring and later got to know and be friends with and work with. But I'm really glad I got to be alive at a time when Judy Tenuta was out there doing comedy. And I'm glad, as I've said, for all these other comics we've lost, all this great work is still there for you to enjoy. Judy is a great, great, great woman and still is. Uh, Do yourself a favor and just revisit the madness and think about how incredibly famous she got to be in the 1980s playing an accordion and calling her own audience pigs. (laughs) She was punk rock. I'm John Fugel saying thank you so much for joining us all evening long. We'll be back tomorrow on the show. William Shatner. Thank you, Thea Harper. Thank you, Chris Houseelt, Professor Andrew Koppelman, and of course, the great Joe Sudbay. We'll be back tomorrow. Keep it tuned to progress. Peace. Peace.